The Gila River rises along the western slopes of New Mexico's Black Range, and is soon joined by its east and west forks. From there it flows some 649 miles through New Mexico and Arizona, before finally joining the Colorado near Yuma, draining more than 58,000 square miles of land and being joined by at least 10 tributaries, including nearly all the major rivers in central and southern Arizona, the San Pedro, the Santa Cruz, the Salt, the Agua Fria, and the Hacayampa. This actually makes the Gila one of the longest rivers in the western United States. Historically, it had a discharge of 1.3 million acre-feet of water per year, with a flow of about 1,800 cubic feet per second at its mouth. At one point, it was navigable by large boats from its confluence with the Colorado up until nearly the present site of Phoenix. Past there, smaller boats could actually make it to the New Mexico state line. Now, if all of that sounds vastly different than the river that you might have driven over as you take an I-10 south of the valley, or at various other places and highways, well, there is a reason for that. And over the next two weeks, we are going to answer the question, whatever happened to the Gila River? I'm your host, David Ruckhausen, and you are listening to AZ, The History of Arizona. Episode 160, Old Man River. Welcome back, everyone. I hope those of you living in the U.S. enjoyed your Thanksgiving weekend. We certainly did, and as a note, I'm glad I took the last couple weeks off because the wife and I learned firsthand all the joys of taking long car rides and extended vacations with a fussy one-year-old. I shudder to think about trying to put out an episode last week while trying to recover from all that and get the baby back on his normal schedule. But we are back now, and it's time to get back down to business. And that business is irrigation. Over the next several episodes, I want to trace the growing need for better water management in central Arizona, which is a long, twisted tale that will ultimately lead to the construction of Roosevelt Dam on the Salt River, and later, the construction of the Coolidge Dam on the Gila River. Though the Roosevelt Dam will come first, ironically enough, what to do about the Gila River was the first question being asked. So we need to talk about the Gila River, and especially those so intrinsically tied to it that they literally called themselves the River People. That is, the Akamel Odom, or the Pima. This episode, we are going to be talking a lot about the Akamel Odom, both to bring their history up to speed with our story, but also to set up the reoccurring core conflict for this run of episodes. That is, people needed water, and there wasn't that much to go around. Now, as I mentioned in the far misty past that was episode 4, the Akamel Odom claimed descent from the Hohokam, whose archaeological existence peters out in the 15th century AD. In fact, you'll often see it said that the term Hohokam comes from the Odom word Huhugam, which I'll just broadly say means ancestors because everyone seems to have their own version of what the word actually means when rendered into English. 
The point being that the Akamel Odom were well established along the watersheds of central Arizona by the time that the bearded white weirdos came along in the 17th century. Most notably, they existed along the Gila River, which author David H. DeJong says they dubbed Kelly Akamel, or Old Man River. And if you now have the song from the musical Showboat stuck in your head, you're welcome. At this point, I should also dive into some etymology to say that in addition to the native Kelly Akamel, Old Man River would go by several names during the Spanish period. It would periodically be known as Rio Grande, Rio Azul, Rio de los Santos Apostoles, Rio de Nombre de Jesus, and then Rio every spelling variation of Gila that you can imagine. The term Gila seems to have been derived from a native language, possibly Quechin, and maybe means running water that is salty, though there doesn't seem to be any hard evidence of this. Using the gifts of Old Man River, the Pima were able to grow summer cotton, corn, melons, beans, and squash, not to mention the abundance of fish they pulled from the water. Also, being descendants of the Hohokam, the Akamel Odom were definitely no slouches when it came to irrigation, though before the arrival of Europeans, they didn't engage in full-scale canal building far away from the Gila's banks. We learned from Spanish accounts that the Akamel Odom were prosperous with a stable food supply, which would open up mounds of trading opportunities with other tribes, and then the Spanish, and then the Mexicans, and eventually the Americans. We read from Spanish and later American accounts that the Pima had fenced plots of irrigated lands and even a highly developed water distribution system and societal controls to make sure everyone had the water they needed. Because of their mastery of irrigation and a high water table, Americans would later note that the Akmel Odom didn't even have to use plows to prepare their soil for planting, just hoes or even forked sticks. Those living along the Middle Gila lived in what could be described as little desert oases, with lagoons, marshes, springs, and the river itself providing for comfortable living even in the heart of the Sonoran Desert. Descriptions also tell us that the Gila was a nearly perennial flowing clear stream lined with cottonwoods, willows, and mesquite trees, and inhabited by all manner of birds and other animals, including, as you might remember from episode 16, beaver. When the Spanish came upon the scene, it kicked off an era of adaptation for the Akamel Odom. One such adaptation was the fact that the Spanish called them the Pima, which seems to have been derived from an Odom word or phrase meaning, I don't know. This was something the Spanish explorers, not the best linguists, heard a lot during their initial encounters and they just sort of assumed it was the Akamel Odom's tribal name. While not as awesome as the apocryphal story about where the word kangaroo comes from, this one does have the benefit of actually being true. I'll also stop a moment here and reiterate my policy for Amerindian names. I'm going to use both Akamel Odom and Pima, as my sources mainly say Pima. Although I know the proper name is Akamel Odom, there are references to things like the Pima villages, which are what they were known as historically. Also, there are just certain times that Pima will sound better with the phrasing I'm using, while at other times, Akamel Odom needs to be said. Okay, back to the story. One thing the Spanish did bring with them, aside from religious zealotry and authoritarian policies, 
was winter wheat. Soon the Akamela Odom had adopted this crop and were growing it abundantly in rotation with their other crops. And according to De Jong, whose book Stealing the Gila is informing the bulk of this week's episode, during the 18th and the first 60 years of the 19th centuries, prevailing moist conditions helped ensure a plentiful water supply to meet the tribe's agricultural needs. This is evident in the fact that we don't have any record of famines or droughts among the Odom people living along the middle stretch of the Gila River in the 1700s, while related groups living along the Santa Cruz would sometimes pack up and move to join them to avoid a lack of food in their own territory. Moving into the 1800s, the Akamel Odom civilization would undergo some changes as expansion in irrigation led to increased contact with the Tuscan Raiders, I mean the Apache. And that raiding caused the Pima to move away from the Gila River itself, setting up communities surrounded by canals and fences. We also see that, while they remained autonomous in civil affairs, villages began to fall under the command of a single tribal leader who oversaw military affairs. One in particular is someone I've name-checked before, Chief Antonio Cuyo Azul. As the Spanish era gave way to the Mexican era and finally to the American era, everyone was well aware of the Pima. Once again, going back to previous episodes, we find that they were nearly unanimously praised as everyone's favorite tribe to deal with. The cynic in me needs to point out that this is almost certainly due to the fact that they were the most like Europeans, living in settled villages, excelling at agriculture, and actually possessing something like a hierarchy that could be dealt with. But historical sources also praise them for their friendliness, hospitality, and honesty, and it didn't hurt either that they were growing a ton of grain and were positioned along a particularly rough spot on the road to California. The Pima villages were a few days out of Tucson and a good place to rest and restock before making the rest of the journey to the Colorado. Soon, floods of settlers trying to make it to California were trading for wheat and other goods with the Pima. Going one step further, the Akamel Odom became known as the Good Samaritans of the Desert, with young men often wandering far afield from the villages with food and water to help tired, thirsty, or distressed immigrants. The tribe soaked in all this good PR and the access to U.S. markets and set up a nice little trade empire for themselves. So when the U.S. officially took control of the Gadsden Purchase in 1854, the Pima decided they wanted to leverage all this goodwill and economic might to control their own destiny a bit. As an aside, they were now led by Chief Azul's son, also named Antonio, who I desperately wanted to learn more about when I first introduced him in episode 53. I haven't learned as much as I would have liked, but at least while reading the Zhang's book, I got a bit more information. And I'll just renew my call here for anyone who knows where to get a decent biography of Antonio Azul to reach out to me, please. Anyway, in June 1855, Azul was part of the small delegation of Akamel Odom, Maricopa, and Tohono Odom who met with surveyor William H. Emery at the site of Nogales. We covered this meeting, and Emery himself, back in episode 27. 
As a refresher, Emery is the guy who, among other things, has two types of cactus named after him, and during this meeting, he told the concerned Amerindians that of course the U.S. would respect their land resources and whatever arrangements they had with Mexico, and that he would definitely encourage all Americans to respect their sovereignty. However, the Amerindians were, quite rightly, not entirely mollified by Emery's words, mainly because, well, the Americans kept coming and some of them were starting to stay. Soon, mail lines were being established, including the famous Butterfield Mail Line, with stops very close to the Pima villages, where officials were tasked with overseeing the purchase of as much grain as the Pima could give them. It's during this time also that the Pima also began planting the first non-native crops, with Americans giving them corn seed as well as barley. And we are talking about a lot of grain here. By 1858, the Pima villages were selling the mail line and travelers 110,000 pounds of surplus wheat, 30,000 pounds of corn, and 5,000 pounds of beans. The next year, they upped the wheat production to 250,000 pounds, and then 350,000 pounds in 1860. While this economic boom was welcome, the Pima soon were making sure the Americans knew that the grass their horses munched on the wood they used for their fires, and the water they were taking from the river, in fact, belonged to the Pima. Also, by 1857, an Indian agent had been appointed to the so-called Gadsden Purchase Indians, who was quickly told that the Pima had been promised a load of farming supplies that had never come, but that they needed to really ramp up production. But the concerns about their land and rights remained the same. I should note here that the Pima of this time had a high dependence on the flow of Old Man River, as they adapted their farming techniques over generations to accommodate the river's sometimes fickle nature, and that included growing the grains the Americans prized so much. And the funny thing is that all the officials who visited them were all for letting the Pima have their traditional land and water rights. Sylvester Maori, another old friend of ours, would write that they couldn't find any Mexican titles that may have been given to the Pima for their land, but that the U.S. should just honor all their rights anyway. Most of his argument was because the Pima had been such good friends to settlers, and just basic humanity said they shouldn't hose them over now. He also wrote that settlers could establish communities on the upper Gila, but all care and respect should be made to not interfere with the Pima's water rights. This sentiment was also expressed by army officers and other officials who interacted with the Akamelotum. However, again playing the cynic, it's also fair to say that they were worried that if they didn't respect the Akamelotum, then they would rise up and cut off a vital link to California. Also, they were a useful barrier against the Apache. With the road to California running right through their villages, it meant commerce could flow freely between Tucson and Yuma without a concern. So I guess it's fair to say that the Americans were using Garth of Iser's definition of friendship, that of enlightened self-interest. Still, the U.S. did decide to act on all this advice, and in 1859, Congress approved creating the Pima Reservation, 
the, the initial amount of land and money that was supposed to be handed over to the Akamel Odom was, of course, pared down quite a bit. What they did end up with was a reservation that was roughly the shape of two parallelograms in a line, each 12.5 miles long and 4 miles wide, falling along the Gila River. But now is the time in our show when we talk about what the reservation did not include. First off, it narrowed down Akamel Odom land to only 64,000 acres, or roughly their cultivated fields, settlements, and, most importantly from the American perspective, the stagecoach stops. It also didn't include Maricopa settlements further downstream, or Akamel Odom settlements upstream near Blackwater Spring. Any cultivated land between the Gila and the Little Gila River, all of Blackwater Springs and Slough, the head and upper portions of the Little Gila River, were also now outside of the borders of this reservation. Maori tried to assuage any concerns by saying that the reservation wasn't trying to limit them to just that land per se, but to protect all their villages and fields. And I think we all know that this was not really true. However, Maori, appointed as a special Indian agent, did note the one truth that if extensive farming and irrigation happened along the Gila above the Pima villages, it could lead to a lot of problems and conflicts down the road. Too bad no one listened to him. Still, the 1860s dawned pretty bright for the Pima, who were cultivating nearly 8,000 acres of land, producing 194,000 bushels of wheat, 252,000 bushels of corn, and 8,000 bushels of beans. However, as we are all well aware, this is right about when the Civil War breaks out, and the Indian agents who had been assigned to the reservation left to join the Confederacy. The same Confederacy that also stopped their replacements from making it to Arizona. Now, Pima wheat would be crucial to the war effort in Arizona, with one report in 1862 saying that 40% of the U.S. Army in the territory, or just under 1,000 soldiers, were fed from what their officers could obtain from the Pima. The Army would constantly be demanding wheat from the Akamal Odom, though it didn't always have the natives' desired form of payment if they had payment at all. At one point in 1863, it was even suggested that the army just go in and seize any wheat as a wartime necessity, something that was vigorously denounced by none other than Charles Poston, recently appointed superintendent of Indian affairs for the territory. Following the war, the Pima experienced a run of bumper crops, with one 1864 estimate saying that their yields had quadrupled since 1860. We are talking over a million pounds of crops here, so much that in 1866 they told the Indian agent that they didn't want any sort of federal aid, except for any education or tools that would help them be even better farmers. And at this point, Prescott had been founded, Hossiampers are swarming over west central Arizona, and everyone wants their produce. However, it's from this success that all their troubles would stem. It's a simple formula, really. The Akamel Odom were there creating their buffer from the Apache and producing all the food anyone could want. This 
plus gold deposits brought in settlers, who soon started wanting to farm the desert valleys for themselves. And those miners also wanted more protection from the Apache, so in came the military, and we all know how that ended up. And soon enough, people decided it was safe enough to farm in the desert valleys along the salt and, wait for it, the Gila. In essence, the Akamel Odom, by being everyone's favorite Amerindian tribe, basically invited in the very people who would destroy their prosperity. By 1864, the community of Adamsville sprung up upstream from the Pima Reservation, and a couple years later, Florence, feeling very secure from the Apache because of the Pima and Maricopa fighting men, started irrigating land just eight miles upstream. Then in 1872, we have the Mormon colony of Safford springing up, followed shortly by Thatcher, Pima, and Duncan. Soon, American crop production had shot up, with more than a thousand acres of land being cultivated upstream from the reservation and producing more grain than the Pima with their small reservation could ever hope to. The Akamel Odom cried foul over this, complaining loudly that the land had been there since time immemorial and that the water in the river rightfully belonged to them. In their darker moments, they even threatened to clear out these new settlers and take back what was rightfully theirs. And it wasn't like the Americans weren't aware of what they were doing. U.S. Commissioner of Indian Affairs Eli Parker received a report in 1869 that for the past two years, the community of Florence had opened a large community ditch for irrigation, but instead of then returning the water to the river after they were done, they just wasted it, depriving the reservation of its use. At the same time, Chief Azul told the Indian agent that they couldn't fill all their irrigation ditches, which meant they couldn't cultivate all their land. As Dejong points out, the Akamel Odom lost control of their own destiny over the course of a single decade. By 1869, things were dire. A year before, a flood had swept through the river and destroyed several Akamel Odom settlements, which was followed by a bad crop. So they began to actively resist anyone trying to farm on their land. In the fall of 1869, 400 Amerindians, many of them Akmel Odom, went up to Adamsville and took over the fields of Mexican settlers. More claimed land near the headwaters of the Little Gila River, while a third group actually got into a fight with settlers that October. Things were only exacerbated by low rainfall in 1870, which was followed by even worse rainfall in 1871. Hardly any water was now reaching the reservation, so while white farmers upstream on the Gila and along the Salt were able to plant a second crop that year, there was simply not enough water for those on the reservation to do likewise. In August 1871, the Territorial Superintendent of Indian Affairs received a report that Amerindians were leaving the reservation, stealing cattle and horses, and destroying crops grown by non-Amerindians. As you can imagine, this led to a steady decline in race relations, and a major shift in attitudes toward the Akmel Odom in particular. Once considered trusted allies, they were now labeled as dangerous, degenerate, and all the other terms Americans usually reserved for Amerindians. 
The Arizona Weekly Citizen even said that if Pima depredations continued, there would, quote, be such a bloodletting of the Pima kind as will cause a greater howl in the east than did the few drops of Apache blood shed near Camp Grant a short time ago, end quote. That's right. A newspaper is calling for a massacre, this time of the Pima. That's where we are at. And it's not like this was one-sided either. Those on the reservation became uncommunicative and untrusting of Americans, always fearing that they were just one step away from having everything taken from them. It didn't help things either that the poverty that now struck the reservation had led the Amerindians into various vices. Whiskey peddlers were now selling on the reservation, and many youth were lapsing into alcoholism. But even worse, unscrupulous individuals had also started prostitution on the reservation, introducing something unheard of among the Amerindians just a decade earlier. Given all of that, it's understandable that there would be a good deal of resentment among the Akamel Odom toward the source of their issues. To prevent more conflict between the Amerindians and the Americans, ideas were pitched, including adding more land to the reservation with access to more water, including around Florence. Long story short, expanding the reservation to the east was looked at, studied, considered, and all other government platitudes, but it never happened. Partially this was because the white leaders of the territory didn't really want to give up more land to the Amerindians. But it was also partially due to the federal government wanting to fall back to its go-to move when it came to problems with the Amerindians. Send them all to Oklahoma. The Odom were, of course, hesitant to accept this idea, but in 1872, things on the reservation were so bad that many were living in their fields and eating what wheat they had, even if it was still semi-green. Chief Azul finally asked that a delegation be sent to Oklahoma to see this land the government wanted to give them. A delegation, including Azul, would be sent in 1873 to tour the Indian territories and they actually returned with a favorable report. It seemed like removal was likely, but then it hit a couple snags. The first is the most predictable. Most of the tribe did not want to move to this faraway, cold place surrounded by other tribes and cut off from their land, their burial grounds, and their sacred places. Since the government technically needed consent to remove a tribe, Removing the Pima was suddenly a non-starter. The second snag was one of those unpredictable things that still managed to shape history. Old Man River suddenly came back to life. The winter of 1873-1874 turned out to be wet, with something like triple the normal amount of precipitation falling, which led the Akmel Odom to again hold out hope that they could farm on their traditional lands. However, hope would prove fleeting, though we'll get more into that in just a bit as this downhill spiral continues. Now, during the three years leading up to the removal question, many on the reservation decided on a very different solution. They would just leave the reservation altogether. Convinced that kicking the Americans off their land was a foolish idea, these Amerindians decided to decamp to the Salt River where water was plentiful. Whole villages would make this migration, 
and a group of Maricopa would move from the reservation to near the confluence of the Salt and Gila to try planting again. In 1873 alone, 300 Ocumel, Odom, and Maricopa moved to the Salt River, settling on what would eventually become the Salt River Reservation. Others left to go find honest work where they could find it, while some just moved to land where they knew they could farm, but wasn't in that small section along the Gila that had been set aside for them. Beginning in 1870, a group of Amerindians moved south and east of the reservation to the Blackwater District, where an alluvial spring provided them with the water that the Gila couldn't. Some moved away from the river and traditional villages altogether, preferring to farm where seepage water was available, such as the communities of Gila Crossing and Maricopa Colony. These areas would later be added to the reservation in 1879 by executive order. So, by August 1873, 1,300 Amerindians had moved away from the reservation. You know, the place they were supposed to stay so they didn't get in the way of any white settlers. Predictably, those white settlers protested loudly with each wave of immigrants. The Pima, they clamored, were dangerous neighbors because of their issues with whiskey. They also were constantly at war with the Apache, settlers complained, forgetting that just 10 years earlier the Pima had been lauded for their militant action against the Apache, which had helped Americans settle in Arizona. Soon a chorus of voices were yelling very loudly that the government should remove all the Pima from the territory. They also made the argument that there was no selfish motive here, as the reservation land was pretty darn poor, so no white settlers would move in there to farm for years. No one seemed troubled at all by the fact that they initially wanted the Pima to stay on this land that apparently no one else would want. There was also talk about taking all the Pima and herding them to the Colorado River Indian Reservation, a plan that was endorsed by Territorial Governor Anson P.K. Safford. But with rainfall picking up in 1873, the Akamel Odom decided to give their reservation another go, and some who had moved away even returned to work farms along the Gila. However, this small boom only lasted until the summer of 1875. By the end of June of that year, the river was no longer flowing on the western end of the reservation, and was barely a trickle before that. This was exacerbated by the discovery of high-grade copper ore east of the reservation, meaning more and more water was being diverted from the river. Less than two years after once again glimpsing sustainability, the Akamel Odom, Maricopa, and others could only watch helplessly as Old Man River again disappeared. I want to leave things here for this week, because... Believe it or not, we are only on the cusp of the great ecological damage that will happen to the Gila because of upstream diversion. So join me next week as the Akamel Odom search for some way, any way, to eke out a living, and their plight becomes the poster child for the reclamation movement starting up in the late 1800s. I'm your host, David Ruckhausen. And you've been listening to AZ, the history of Arizona. Goodbye.